Next step, uh, I'm just going to do our Bible reading tonight, which is from 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verses 10 to 17. So I'll just give you a moment to find that in your Bibles if you've got them there, or it'll be up on the screen. I appeal to you, brothers and sisters, in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that all of you agree with one another in what you say, and that there be no divisions among you, but that you be perfectly united in mind and thought. My brothers and sisters, some from Chloe's household have informed me that there are quarrels among you. What I mean is this. One of you says, I follow Paul. Another, I follow Apollos. Another, I follow Cephas. Still another, I follow Christ. Is Christ divided? Was Paul crucified for you? Were you baptised in the name of Paul? I thank God that I did not baptise any of you, except Crispus and Gaius, so no one can say that you were baptised in my name. Yes, I also baptised the household of Stephanas. Beyond that, I don't remember if I baptised anyone else. For Christ did not send me to baptise, but to preach the gospel, not with wisdom and eloquence, lest the cross of Christ be emptied of its power. Thank you, Darcy. Yes, do have God's word open in front of you. We're going to trek through that passage together. As we do, we're going to pray before we approach God's word together. Our good and gracious God, we thank you for your word. We thank you it is truthful, uh, that it is from you. Uh, we thank you that it helps us to know who you are and who we are as your people. We pray in this moment as we come before that you will speak directly through me, that your Holy Spirit will be at work in this room and across the screen as we listen uh, to what you have to say to a people 2,000 years ago and also to us in this moment. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. So some of you may know, but I, um, for the last many, many years, have been part of Pecos United's soccer team, along with Gio, who is our bass player, uh, Luke Field, who became a dad, and we love Pecos United. And it's a quality football team, even though we lost <laughs> three weeks in a row now. But a couple of years ago, uh, we had some real big egos in our team. Uh, some people who really thought they were better than everyone else and who created a bit of a muck, a, a bit of a, a, a raw, like a, a ruckus kind of thing. And what happened was these guys weren't the, the leaders, they weren't the coach or anything like that. We kind of had a coach, we had a captain and a manager and all this kind of thing. But these guys from kind of amongst the team started all these divisions. They're like, we should be playing this way, we should be playing that way, this guy's bad, we should be playing someone from the reserves up in first grade. And our team just got disunified. There was just division, and the results just got worse and worse and worse. We started losing game after game. There was no joy amongst our team. We ended up getting the worst result that we've got in um, the whole time we are in A grade, and we came second last that year. At the turn of the year, a lot of those guys kind of, they left or they moved on, and our team was like, we are going to be unified. If nothing else this year, it was so bad last year, we're going to be on the same page. And among some other things, we ended up coming second that year. It was great. Wonderful. We had a, we had a good, good year that following time. But unity, 
no matter what kind of organization and what kind of people we are, whether there's two or more, is so important. And we've seen through that reading that that is what Paul is on about for the Corinthians and what we're going to be uh, tackling today in this letter. Because we are exploring this series called out. Uh, if you were here last week, we began the, uh, this series looking at 1 Corinthians. It is a letter. It's a letter that's written by Paul to the people of Corinth. Surprise, surprise, called Corinthians. Uh, but that's where we're at. And if you remember from last week, this is a church that is really loved by Paul. Right, Paul loves them, God loves them, but they're an absolute mess. And we're going to get into the beginning of that mess today. Uh, the big problem that they got is that they are just like the culture around them. If you went looking for the Corinthian church, the church of God in Corinth, it's like you couldn't find them because they look exactly like the surrounding culture. It's like trying to find a chameleon, just blending in with what's going on around and what I was saying last week and what Paul's kind of big theme throughout this letter is, we are called to be distinctly Christian in an unchristian culture. To be distinctly Christian in an unchristian culture. And so last week we looked at this, the first nine verses. Paul very much saying, hello, Paul, to the church of God in Corinth. And then you guys are sanctified, you're called out, you are the people of God, and he thanks God for the grace that he's given them. And then he gets into it. He gets into this bit from verse 10. So let's, uh, let's dive in from here. So verse 10. I appeal to you, brothers and sisters, in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. To stop there. If you're in my home group, you love that. Deb's already laughing. Um, Paul is saying right from the outset here, like, I'm like exhorting you with all my energy. I'm appealing to you. Like, listen to me, Corinthians. And you guys are brothers and sisters. Straight away, family. You guys, sure, families, they have sometimes some problems, but you guys are brothers and sisters. We've got to work it out. We are the family of God. And the next little bit there he said was, I appeal to you in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. That, that might seem a little bit, okay, cool, that's interesting, that's nice of you, Paul. There's a bit of contention, though, around Paul's leadership in Corinth. And what he's saying here is, what I'm about to say to you is straight from Jesus. It's in the name of Jesus, but it's in his vein, or more in the authority of. It's in the authority of Jesus uh, what he is about to say. And what he has to say is this. That all of you agree with one another in what you say, and that there'll be no divisions among you, but that you'll be perfectly united in mind and in thought. This big overarching thing that Paul is going to get into is that, Corinthians, you are divided. This is a church divided. It is tearing apart at the seams, like a shirt that is ripped in all the wrong places. They are just torn apart into factions, and this cannot be. A church that is divided, it is good as a water bucket with a hole in it. Useless. It can't achieve its purpose. Now, I know that 99% of us, other than probably Tim McBride, don't care too much for ancient Greek rhetoric. But what Paul is doing here, and I won't bore you with the detail there, is he is setting up his big argument. This is like his thesis statement, if you like. His big idea. If you write emails, this is his, like, subject line in the email you're called 
to unity. And he's going to bring out a bunch of different ways that this church is called to unity, the ways that they're not, and how they are uh, to be unified. Now, when you hear unity, it's a bit of like a nice buzzword, isn't it? Like, who doesn't want to be unified, right? Even some of our, well, there's a political party that's decided they want to be called along those lines of being united, right? We like the idea of unity until we decide to disagree, until somebody thinks differently to us, suddenly unity becomes a problem. But before that, we love the idea. But what is it? What is unity? Now, Paul is really going to unpack that across the next four chapters and beyond. But he gives a helpful definition at the beginning here, to be perfectly united in mind and in thought. In the Greek, it literally says, like, speak the same thing. Now, what that could sound like is that we all have the exact same opinion that we all think exactly the same way about every little issue uh, that's going on. Like, but Paul is not really saying that. He's not saying be androids and like copies of one another. Unity is not uniformity. Unity is when there is things of so much diversity yet aligned on the same purpose, on the same overall goal, on the same mission together. It's strong, it's unbreakable in its alignment. Another way of saying what Paul is saying there, a different translation, is unity in mission, uh, sorry, unity in the message and unity in purpose. That is what they'd about be about. The Corinthians, when, when the community around you looks at you and hears what you're saying, we should have a unified message on the gospel and you should be in the same alignment, the same purpose. You could think about it like a, an orchestra. Paul will go on to later give an example of a body, but you could think about an orchestra. An orchestra at a musical has so many different instruments, right? They're all different. They make different sounds. They have different parts to play within uh, whatever musical piece they're performing. But they're all so different. Yet when they come together, it is something quite beautiful, isn't it? It's delightful. It creates a beautiful sound and music that is appealing and uh, achieves its purpose. And they're conducted by the, the same conductor, the one that's telling them to come in, to come out, how to, to go about the tempo of what's going on. That's what the church is to be like in its mission. Jesus is like our conductor. We all have different parts to play, but all contributing uh, to the same goal. The Corinthians, though, are not like that. They are not like that at all, and it seems they're even proud of it. <laughs> they're, they're proud, it seems, of being disunified. There is divisions amongst them, and Paul is going to get straight to the heart of it. Verse 11. My brothers and sisters, some from Chloe's household have informed me that there are quarrels among you. What I mean by this, what I mean is this. One of you says, I follow Paul. Another, I follow Paulus. Still another, I follow Cephas. Others, I, I, I follow Christ. So much different division that is going on. Now, let me paint kind of the picture here. Chloe, her household, um, Chloe is probably a wealthy business owner, a businesswoman back in Corinth. Uh, she's probably one of the hosts of the house churches which make up the, the whole Corinthian church because she's wealthy, she's got a home, people come to it, and she hosts. 
Now, her people or her household that Paul is referring to is probably like uh, her business partners or her servants or her family. And in some way, they've come to see Paul. He's over in Ephesus and they've met up with him and they give the report. And the report is Corinth is a mess. They are disunified. They're in factions. They're not talking to one another, but more than not talking to one another, they are at each other. They are fighting. It's kind of like they've become the Australian political parties, right? They are against one another. There's factions uh, going on. Now, to us, that can sound a little bit ludicrous. Why would that be going on in the church? Why would they want to be aligning themselves to all these different leaders? Now, to understand that, we need to go back to our tour of Corinth last week and understand a little bit about what's going on in uh, the day there. Now, to revisit that, if you remember from last week, Corinth is at the crossroads in Greece, crossroads between the east and the west of the empire. It is dripping with trade and money, and just like rotten fruit attracts flies, money attracts people. So there's, everybody is there. And along with that, it is the place of opportunity. Right? And because it's the place of opportunity, the ability to climb the social ladder uh, is possible and very attractive. And that is the perfect environment for sophistry. Now, I doubt many of us know what sophistry is. I didn't have a, know a great deal about it before going to college. But it is the big news of the day. More than the big news, it's the big entertainment of the day. Right? Forget Netflix and Stan and streaming or going on to watch the doggies play. Sophistry was the talk and literally the entertainment of the town. Now, sophistry comes from the Greek word Sophia. Anyone know what Sophia means in English? Wisdom means wisdom. And so a sophist was a self-proclaimed expert in wisdom. And if you're an expert in wisdom, then it comes along with a lot of power, influence in society. Now, a sophist was someone who is very highly trained in rhetoric. And rhetoric is the art of persuasion. How can they make you think a certain way to align you with a certain ideal? And sophists would talk about the philosophies and the ideas and the kind of big relevant topics of the day and convince people and draw people to themselves um, in a way that gave them a lot of social power and those who followed them also gained that kudos. But importantly for them, it is much more style over substance. It's much more about how they present than really what they're presenting. What they're presenting is important, uh, but it is like, can they sound intelligent? Can they persuade you? Do they have the pizzazz? And when someone is like that, got a lot of charisma, people follow you. People like you. And that is how the sophists gained a following. And what it meant was the followers of sophist A would then be hating on the sophist B. And then they would be bagging out sophist C. And what would happen is there's just these rivalries going on. They're paying out one another to kind of vie for power. But we're in an election at the moment, right? So many of the ads is one political party paying out the other political party. That's what's going on with the, the followers here of these sophists in Corinth. It's a competitive environment. 
to gain social power. And it seems as though the Corinthian culture has adopted exactly that into the church. Like people following sophists has become how Christians are following their leaders. They've broken off into camps and saying, I follow Paul. I'm on the Paul tribe. And we're against the other tribes. Or I'm of the Apollos tribe. And Apollos is better than all the others. I'm of the Cephas tribe. That's what is going on there. They have uncritically adopted the culture around them to be all about hero worship. They've put up their leaders as heroes and it's created disunity. Now, it would be really fascinating, I think, to find out exactly how that looked uh, at the time. The Corinthians obviously know exactly what Paul is talking about. Uh, We're left to kind of fill in the blanks a little bit and we're going to do that in a moment and it's remarkably similar to how our culture could look like today. Now, firstly, that I follow Paul tribe. Now, we know a lot about Paul. Uh, he's obviously the founder of the church. He's kind of, he calls him, he thinks of himself as like the Corinthian church's father. He cares for them in that way. He loves them. He's planted the church. So perhaps those that say, I follow Paul, are the, we're the faithful ones. You know, we're loyal. We want to be deep in God's word. We're, you know, we want to be spiritual like Paul is calling us to. Deep in God's word. You might want to call them the conservatives. But in Paul's eyes, sorry, in the Corinthians' eyes, Paul's lacking a little bit in the public square. Let me read you this quote from 2 Corinthians. He repeats some of the words back to them in his uh, later letter, and this is what he says. Now, some of you say Paul's letters are weighty and forceful, but in person, he's unimpressive and his speaking amounts to nothing. What a slam, right? Like in other words, Paul, man, in your letters, you are good. You're robust. Like, I'm with you. You're intelligent. And it sounds like you really know what you're talking about. But when you meet, when we see you in person, man, you're lame. You've got no style, right? You are not like the sophists. And that brings us to Apollos' tribe. Now, Paulus is a prominent Christian teacher of the day. He actually comes to Corinth uh, to do some really fruitful ministry after Paul has, has gone on to the next part of his journey. And Paul and Apollos, they seem to be on really good terms. In chapter 3, Paul says that um, their ministry is complementary. Paul plants, Apollos waters, God gives the growth. Basically, these leaders are on the same team, right? But Apollos is seemingly way more appealing to the Corinthians. Because as we read about in Acts 18, he does have the style. He is eloquent. He's educated and he's very persuasive. He's like the sophists, it seems. Highly attractive to the Corinthians. Perhaps Apollos makes the Corinthians look good in the marketplace, the Christian ones. Paul and Apollos, they preach in the same gospel, but Apollos does it with a pizzazz. So it could seem like the ones that are saying, I follow Apollos, perhaps they like how Apollos makes them look. They like how Apollos makes Christianity look in the marketplace. It looks meaningful. It looks progressive. It looks up to date with what's going on in the world and the culture. At best, the Apollos tribe are, we're for mission, we're for reaching the world. At worst, 
And probably what's going on is that they are shallow and they are way more concerned with how they look amongst the culture and fitting in than they are concerned with Jesus. That brings us to the Cephas tribe. Now, Cephas is the Aramaic word for Peter. So Peter, one of the 12 apostles, uh, one of the more prominent apostles uh, in the Gospels. And perhaps Peter, he's come to Corinth, we're not quite sure um, what his direct influence to the Corinthians are, but they will certainly know about him as being a prominent apostle. And so perhaps those that are saying they're of Peter are the ones that are for the tradition. And Peter, he's Jewish, and he is often explaining how Christ is the Jewish Messiah. And so perhaps the ones that are following Peter, they're a bit more the ones for tradition. They're the ones that are like, let me see the, the right rules and the rhythms. You know, just tell me how to do it. Now, Paul's too theological. Apollos is too sophisticated. You know, Peter, he just tells it how it is. I like that. Right? The traditional ones. And then finally, it brings us to option D. I follow Christ. Now, that one, it sounds like the goods, yeah? We're all about people that are following Christ. But there's a problem. Because Paul wraps them all up in the same, in the same uh, words. Uh, they're under the same critique. He's not too happy with them at all. Now, that means that there's a problem with his tribe. Now, there's so much speculation about what that actually is. But the consensus seems to be that these people are the hyper-spiritual ones. These are the ones that are like, eh, we've risen above this need for leadership. We've risen above the church and we have this greater connection with Christ. I don't need leaders. I don't need the church. It's me and my buddies down at the bar drinking beers saying how bad the Australian church is. Right? That's the I follow Christ tribe. Proud, spiritually arrogant. I'll just do it all myself. Now, there's lots of kind of ways we could label these tribes, and this is a bit of license here. But it's like you've got the conservative, the progressive, the traditionalist, and I'll do it all myself. All these people in, in the Corinthian church, and it's creating division. Like, isn't it scary how much a 2,000-year-old letter that is the Word of God could speak so much to our culture today? Like, in a sense, we haven't moved much beyond that, have we? We still do the same stuff. Like, it can be little things, you know, I follow the doggies, I follow the dragons, and we can't really do church together. That's not really the case. Could be more serious things. Oh, we shouldn't sing Hillsong. Oh, we should. I'm conservative. I'm progressive. You know, we put these markers in the ground. I'm Calvinist. No, I'm Arminian. I'm for preaching the gospel. No, I'm for social justice. I'm complementarian, soft complementarian, egalitarian, open, closed, amyl, pre-mill, post-mill. Some of you are like, what on earth is he talking about? But all these ways that we can divide as the people of God. Friends, there are so many things that are like not central to the gospel. They're important, yes. We should have firm convictions about them. But they're not things for us to divide over. When we break into to tribes, uh, we destroy the unity of the local church. Sure, these things are important, but, this, but if they're secondary, they are not essential. And when we make them everything and we start to divide and exclude one another because they don't think the same, because they're different from us, we have caused division.
Now, in our society at large, division has been growing. Social researchers say that we're more politically uh, divided and ideologically polarized than ever before. Because of the situation in the world, the influence of our social media and the algorithms in there, society as a general is becoming more staunch in their positions and more polar. Friends, the, the threat of division arises when we blindly adopt the culture around us. When we seek to, to walk in the same kind of ways, the same division that we see going on in the city of Sydney. And we need to fight extremely hard to keep the unity of the church and to not allow divisions. Now, there's heaps of things that we can pick up on uh, as we think about that. And you might be able to think of a couple in your own mind. Let me just drill in on, on one particular one. We're in election season at the moment. Political parties vying for our vote. Many of us have firm convictions or a growing conviction about who we should or, or shouldn't vote for. Our culture becomes very divided on that issue. If we don't agree and if we don't have the same ideas, it's like, well, you're wrong, I'm right, we can't be friends, you're cancelled, cut off. That cannot be us as the church. That cannot be us. Sure, be informed. Definitely be informed. Understand what's going on in the world of politics. Know who you think is the best person to vote for that's going to be the best for our country and is going to be the one that's going to see the values of the kingdom of God upheld. Have good political convictions. Cast your vote. But don't allow your vote to divide you from your brothers and Christians. Don't allow their vote to divide us. Sure, we will vote differently, and we almost certainly will, but this is not a cause for division. Our political party is not our ultimate allegiance. We are people of Jesus. We are people of the kingdom of God, and we live in this world to that accord. Friends, if we divide for any sort of reason other than what is central to the gospel... We have fallen prey to the same sin, the same problem as the Corinthians. We cannot uncritically adopt the culture. The Corinthians do it with leaders in the name of wisdom. We need to make sure we don't do the same in any other issue as well. And then Paul moves on. That's what he had to say in verses 10 through to 12. And now he wants to pick up more in that division. But he's going to drill down further on kind of what it's looking like for them, and hint towards what it looks like to be unified. Let me read on from verse 13. So having said, you know, I follow Paul, I follow Apollos, I follow Cephas, Paul says, is Christ divided? Was Paul crucified for you? Of course the answer is no. By making the question so obvious, it shows to the Corinthians how far they've fallen. How silly it is what they're doing. Christ is the Lord of the church. Only Christ is the Lord of the church, not another leader. Christ is the only Savior. It's not Paul. Paul is not crucified for you. And Christ is certainly not divided. It's not one part of the church gets this part of Christ, another part gets this part, part of Christ. Christ is united and his church is therefore to be united. 
to align yourself with a Christian leader and glorify them above Christ is wrong. Especially when there's some kind of perceived power that comes along with you aligning with them. And Paul starts to have a bit of a go at the I am Paul tribe, it seems. And he goes on a bit of a tangent, it seems at first, about baptism. He goes on, Were you baptized in the name of Paul? I thank God that I didn't baptize any of you except for Crispus and Gaius. So none of you could say you were baptized in my name. Uh, Yes, uh, I also baptized the household of Stephanas. Beyond that, I don't remember if I baptized anyone. I don't just love the rawness of God's word and Paul there. But it, it is strange that Paul wants to bring up baptism. Why, why, why would baptism be such an issue? We're a Baptist church. We're all about baptism. Jesus, he calls us and the disciples, they call us to be baptized. So what's the issue here? Why is that a problem? Baptism is about allegiance. Baptism in the Christian way is that you're aligning yourself with Christ. You're united with him. It's a physical expression of that spiritual reality. For the Corinthians, though, they're not so much worried about baptism, but who is baptizing them. It matters to them who baptizes them because of the perceived social power will give them. Perhaps if I'm baptized by Paul, man, I'm closer to the founder of this church. I'm closer to our leader. Oh, that makes me look better. Paul says it's not about that at all. And he's saying if that is their attitude, who really is your Christ? Who really is the one who gives you meaning, who gives you value? Who is the one that you're really worshiping? If you're aligning yourself with a leader above Christ, then Jesus doesn't become your true Savior. Now, sure, they are united to Christ. They're in him. They are saved by Jesus, but they're not acting in that way. Jesus must and always be our Lord and our hope. He is the one who gives allegiance, who we give our allegiance to, who gives us meaning and value. And can I say, that is actually an absolutely fantastic thing. Like, sure, we need to follow our leaders. I know that sounds kind of self-serving, but God's word does cause to that. But Christ is our ultimate. He is our Lord. Because I'm going to fail you. At some point, I will fail you. And at some point, maybe has already, I won't say for him, but has failed. All humans will fail us at some point. Like you just have to look across the church at the moment over the last year and see the number of high-profile Christian leaders who've fallen and the detriment that's caused to individuals and the church. We cannot exalt our leaders above Christ. Now for Paul... Irrespective of how the church is viewing him, he knows his role. He knows the kind of person, the kind of person of God that he is called to be. He is one to preach Christ. And at every and every opportunity, he will preach Christ and Christ alone. He says this, verse 17, For Christ did not send me to baptize, but to preach the gospel. Not with wisdom and eloquence, lest the cross of Christ be emptied of its power. Now, some of the real depth of that gets explained by Paul for the next chapter and a little bit into chapter 2. And so, Ange, when we look at Corinthians next, we'll dive into that. But I want to help us understand this in the light of what uh, is causing the disunity. 
and the misunderstanding of the gospel. Paul is saying here, I'm not going to win my admirers. I'm not looking for social credit points on how I preach. I'm not like the sophists. I'm not looking for the crowds to be pleased with me. I'm looking for everyone to see Christ. That when they hear me preach, Christ is glorified. Sure, he wants to be persuasive. He wants to be intelligent and meaningful in the way that he communicates the gospel. But his focus is about the message, not the preacher. That's what it means when he says, lest the cross be emptied of its power. It's not that the cross becomes literally less powerful, but if the preacher becomes more magnificent, more glorified, more the focus than the gospel, then it seems that the, the, kind of, the force of the, the message of the gospel reduces in the mind of the listener. Now just have a think about some of the, the sermons that you've listened to or some other preachers or whatever it may be. And if you walk away from the sermon only thinking, Wow, what an amazing preacher. Man, how good were they? They were funny. They were intelligent. They had some awesome stories. But it leaves you nothing about Jesus. Then that probably has two things to say. It might have something to say about how you've engaged with the sermon. It also may have a lot to do with the preacher. Friends, whenever we preach the gospel, whether it's me in this position, whether it's you sharing the gospel with your, your friends, your family, your neighbors, it must always center on Christ, not on you as the one giving the message. Now, sometimes we preach and the way that it's perceived by us in the audience is you know, more focused on, on us and the message. So can I say just humbly, like, work with me. Sometimes I will fail. Sometimes I'm not going to do it as best I could. I'm learning. You're with me. Remember, we are people of Christ. When we're hearing the message of God's word, it is the gospel that is to go forth. And Paul is then in a roundabout way saying, you're a divided church, Corinth. You're going off into all these factions. You want to be united? Be united on the gospel. That's what Paul preaches. That's what he's about. You have a look at the first nine verses. Nine times he mentioned Jesus. He's gone here straight to the gospel. He's going to just keep talking about the gospel. He sounds like a broken record just talking about lots of different issues. But be united on the gospel. And when we're united on the gospel, we will be unified. We're in main mission at the moment, and Elizabeth and I went on a mission trip to uh, Southeast Asia a, a couple years back. Uh, we're in kind of the mountains with one of the locals who were uh, workers there. And we didn't know them that well. We were just linked up through some mutual uh, missionary contacts and we are just getting exposure and trying to encourage them. That was really the purpose of what was going on. We weren't with them for very long. But at one night, they were saying, okay, we're going to sing some songs and, and do an open God's word. They didn't speak a great deal of Indonesian. Um, th that's okay. We spoke next to no Indonesian. And we just said, look, well, listen, that's okay. And then they said, we're going to sing. We don't know the song in English, but uh, we'll sing it in Indonesian and just join us. So, okay, sure. That sounds good. And they started singing in Indonesian, How Great Is Our God. And Elizabeth and I were like, oh man, we know that song. And then we started singing in English. 
And it was this really beautiful moment of these Indonesians who were just speaking Indo and us two silly white people sitting with them, singing in English, how great is our God in two different languages. That was an expression of unity. But the unity was not in that we knew the song. The unity wasn't even really that we're on mission together or that we had some mutual friends. The real unity is that we were founded on the gospel, that we had the same Lord, the same hope. That is what united us. That's what actually made that moment so special. And we need to have that attitude in all and every relationship that we have with our brothers and sisters, to be people that are centered on Jesus. As Paul said at the beginning, to have one mind and one purpose. Sure, we're all individuals. We all have something different to offer. We're all diverse. But we come together in unity around our King and our Lord Jesus. We have the same mindset of Christ. For when Christ is central, we are united. When Christ is glorified. And when that is happening, people from around our neighborhood are going to be attracted to Jesus because of the light of his church. Now, that's obviously going to be very hard. And there is continuous threats to our unity. But this is what God calls us to be. I'm going to invite the band uh, to come up again so you can start coming up now. And I want to read to you another one of Paul's, uh, from one of his letters in Ephesians. And in there, he's spoken about the gospel, and then he transitions to this in Ephesians chapter 4, which is very much about the call to unity. And as I read it to you, can I ask you to stand? Let's stand as I read this over us. And yes, this is, this is the word of God. Paul says, I urge you to live a life worthy of the calling you've received. Be completely humble and gentle. Be patient, bearing with one another in love. Make every effort to keep the unity of the Spirit through the bond of peace. There is one body and one Spirit, just as you were called to one hope when you were called, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is over all, through all, and in all. Our Father, we ask that we are this kind of people, that we are people who are unified, who we have the mind of Christ, who are seeking to bring you glory, and that as we're unified, may your light go out across this neighborhood, across the world, so that people will glorify you and come into your family. We ask this in the name of Jesus. Amen.